This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop and they deliver nationwide. Today's guest is the novelist and screenwriter Nick Hornby. He's one of those needs-no-introduction writers. I've been a fan of his for decades, and I'm one of millions of readers drawn to his stories for their wit, warmth, sadness, sharpness and profundity. His latest novel, Just Like You, is the story of Lucy and Joseph forging a tender, fragile but irresistible connection against all odds. We talked about rereading the Molesworth books, the aesthetic pleasures of old Penguin classics, and whether or not reading engenders empathy. I read right before the pandemic started um, that astonishing book. Um, who wrote Gilead? Marilyn Robinson. Yes, Marilyn Robinson. And I read, is it called Homecoming? Housekeeping. It's an incredible book, I think, Housekeeping. I mean, I hadn't read it until... Well, I didn't read it anywhere near when it was published. Um, I, I read Housekeeping and Gilead in quite quick succession. And they both completely blew me away. I think they're incredible books. What led you to them? Housekeeping, I, th- I think it was continued reference to it in um, greatest 20th century novels or whatever, and, and I didn't know anything about it, really. Oh, and uh, there was a film that I liked a lot that came out in the 80s, um, a film of housekeeping, and I'd, I'd never been curious enough to find the book, but when I kept seeing it coming up as a reference point, I thought, oh, I love that film. And they're so different tonally. Um, the film was made by um, the guy who made Local Hero. Oh, really? Yeah, when he went to America. It was the first film he made in America. And it starred Christine Larty, who was an actress I loved at the time. Anyway, it was all in there. And then um, I read it, yeah, sort of... 15 years ago, I guess, just before Gilead came out. Um, I was reading an interview where you made some very interesting comments, I think, about, I suppose, the way we read for pleasure. And that's something that's, I think, changed between generations. And you were talking about, you know, younger people and sort of, why would they read? And, you know, you can't really argue that, you know, something 
on the book a long list necessarily has more artistic merit than a series of The Wire. I'm curious about in your own reading, and obviously, you know, as you write for screen as well as writing novels, and there's a certain amount of reading that you sort of you have to do. Is there a balance or a payoff between reading purely for pleasure and reading to be stretched, or do you just focus on the pleasure? That being stretched is a is a very complicated question, I think, um, because when you find something that you love and is yours and you're relating to, I think stretched and not stretched really doesn't come into it. I mean, there are people who wouldn't, I think, read Gilead uh, because it's quite dense and, and it's it's quite Christian. And I found it electrifying and it, it was a book that I, I, I felt that I'd always wanted to read because one of the things it did was explain to me um, how Christianity did not narrow your mind, but broaden your mind. And I hadn't read a book like that before. I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist. But for the first time, I saw how Christianity could um, assist thought rather than restrict it. And that that was just, at the time it got me, I, I wolfed it down. Um, I love Dickens. Lots of people find that a real slog. So the stretching... I think you're only stretched, really, by things that are a bit boring. And you think, oh, I'm being stretched by this. But I don't necessarily think that's the right book for you. I think that you can read pretty much most of the best books ever written without being stretched by them. They were never meant to stretch people. Dickens didn't want to do that. Jane Austen didn't want to do that. Shakespeare didn't want to do that. This is an entirely... 20th century notion I think that books stretch us maybe it's it's in the run-up to a book and you know I, I think you're right I think that um Gilead certainly it's it's got a a reputation for it's something that I think someone might feel daunted by before they yeah. start and I suppose that's the tricky thing isn't it to not be to make sure that no one is is put off but there are definitely a book I think about a lot is um Duck's Newburyport which I had to read and I really 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 dreaded it and I did find it a bit of a stretch I think for the first 100 150 pages and then suddenly I was kind of immersed and addicted and obsessed and I missed it and I resented being away from it but I'm glad but I did I did feel stretched by that book I felt that I was capable of cheap making choices where there were more friction or maybe more more obstacle or I realized that lots of the obstacles were sort of purely you know in my head that I wanted to make things that and I wanted to read things that weren't simply comfortable and delightful but you know I think I, I should say that your novels are novels I reach for and I want to read and reread and they're universes that move me and give me a great deal of pleasure and many insights into how humans work. Are there um, any novels that you have read and or read regularly? Or I don't reread as a rule. Um, I'm way too conscious of what I haven't read. And there are a couple of things I've reread over the last 15 years and I was shocked by um, how like not rereading it was. <laughs> 
um, as in I couldn't really remember anything apart from roughly what the book was about. So it's an artificial distinction to a certain extent, the reading, rereading. I do tend to pick up books I've never read before. There are some books that are written in pieces or short essays that um, sometimes I reread. I think the Molesworth books um, are never far away from me. I always have access to them and you can spend two minutes standing reading and find something incredibly funny uh, that that you've forgotten about. Um, I'd say they're probably the things I've I've reread the most. And I think that, you know, if you could only have one book to hand for the rest of your life, I think a Molesworth book is a really strong choice. Were they books that you first read as a as a much younger man, how did they get into your hands? Oh, yeah, well, as a kid. I mean, I used to get them from the library. Um, I mean, it's it's difficult, uh, Molesworth, when you're a kid because of the misspellings and you never quite know whether you're getting all the jokes or not because you're not quite sure whether something's spelt that way or not. But, um, you know, I think that the, the purest pleasure comes um, as an adult... I've tried it with my kids and they don't see what's quite so hilarious about not spelling a word right. Again, possibly because of their uncertainty at the time that I was I was showing it to them. But um, I, I used to go uh, to the library every Saturday with my mum and my sister and um, I, I remember looking for those over and over again. I remember feeling that way about Adrian Mole and, you know, having read and reread those books so many times and loved them, but not really, or finding them very funny when I was a teenager, but also I was so earnest and pompous and Adrian being so pretentious. I'd be like, that's entirely <laughs> sensible. What's wrong with that? Yes. Well, uh, I mean, that, that pompousness and earnestness tends to shape one's late teenage reading, I think, and not always... Um, for good uh, you know we're, I don't know if it was the same your generation but um, during sixth form it was the thing to be seen with a penguin modern classic which was light green in, in its spine and um, and was you know Sartre, Camus uh, things like Henry James were modern classics and the older I get the more I see the, how close in time those things were to my own Time. I mean, something like L'Etranger had only been published 30 years before I was in the sixth form, I guess, something like that, which puts it in, a, in the realm of kind of mm, white teeth or certainly uh, money is old, older now than, um, than L'Etranger was then. I had a funny thing where my first book was published as a Penguin Modern Classic, which uh, Fever Pitch, which was incredibly thrilling. But then, of course, there was a barrage of press about, but oh, you can't say that's a classic, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and people's definitions of classic were so peculiar. Um, partly they get muddled up between classic and classical, I think. Um, and they were saying it's much too soon, much too soon. But of course, we, we make decisions like that all the time. We know when we've seen a classic football match, it, it, even if it finished five minutes ago. We ne- know when we've seen a classic film. It means the best of its kind. That's all, that's all it means. But we have this obsession 
driven by literary culture to go towards the classics, whatever they may be. Were you reading Sartre and Camus yes. and um, yeah. having opinions about them? Yeah, I can't remember what the opinions were. Um, I, I suspect there were the more jokes about them than opinions about them, probably, um, in, in my intellectual insecurity. I do remember that the first roughly contemporary... Not contemporary... First 20th century novel that I read as um, a piece of schoolwork was A Passage to India. And I couldn't believe how much difference it made to my attitude to the book that they spoke in sentences that I could understand and that didn't make me struggle. And, and that the book was something about the difficult, other than the difficulty of the language itself, which up until that point, um, with Shakespeare and Chaucer and uh, some of the 18th uh, 19th, 18th century novels, you have that wall between you of, of struggling through it to get to what's there. Whereas Forster, I didn't have to do that. I could just think about what the book was about. And that was incredibly liberating, I think. And I suppose, again, this idea of, of you know, of being stretched, that, you know, being allowed to, to access and enjoy and understand, that can only be a a good thing and you know everything that sort of is now presented as difficult it was never intended it was never intended to be difficult so let's move on let's find something else which is not intended to be difficult not get stuck where we were there's an astonishing um bit of writing by george orwell about david copperfield um and orwell said that when he read it when he was a child and he was convinced that it was written by a child so brilliantly did it understand the state of childhood. Well, if you think about when Orwell wrote, how old he was when he was a child and when Dickens died, he was within sort of 40 years, 50 years of, of Dickens' life. There is no way that any child now would think that David Copperfield was written by a child. They would think it was written by a really complicatedly long-winded grown-up um in which case a lot of the immediacy of the book it has no point for them um it's gone it's lost and i'm so passionate about dickens that i would actually prevent him from being read in school by law like no one should be allowed to read great expectations until they're in their 20s i mean they are very intimidating lengths most of them um and long Long is a word I hear from teenage boys a lot. Oh, it's long. And that's usually just any kind of, <laughs> kind of a book, <laughs> let alone a Dickens book. Thank God. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, they say it about films. Uh, it's oh, long um, if we try and make them watch a film. Also, I think Dickens is so funny. But if you're struggling mm. with the, um, the lengths of the sentences and, um, and you're struggling with your own concentration at that age, you're not going to find him funny. So the point of that is lost as well. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think that's something that, again, people, when, you know, this notion of sort of what is difficult and people, you know, forget that. And some humour is sort of perennial. Some does kind of age and some needs to be presented in a slightly different way um and I know you've talked about talked about Dickens you've talked about Molesworth can you remember the first time you read a really funny novel 
I think the first book I read that I thought was really funny that made me laugh was Catch-22, which I probably read when I was 16 or 17. And I have to say, I tried more recently and I, I didn't get on with it. I think I read it at exactly the right time and exactly the right cultural moment. I'm, uh, that's not to say it wasn't funny then or it, or it isn't funny now. There are some things where you just cannot replicate the circumstances of reading something for the first time. But there are funny books. There aren't that many, I don't think. Oh, really? Where they're not unsatisfying. Um, if someone goes for comedy, then you know that the last third of the book is going to be wrapping up some kind of daft plot. Um, so the ones that I come across um, that are properly funny all the way through and, and the author knows how to control it, I think um, I, I completely treasure those those books. I mean, I know I'm a, a great fan of, um, I believe, our mutual friend Nina Stibby. I think she is a truly fantastic comic novelist. Comic novelist, and, yeah. But I really enjoyed recently uh, Francis Plug, How to Be a Public Author. I think what makes that so funny is... I don't know if you call it satire or not really, but it is skewering a kind, again, earnestness and pomposity. Right. And I suppose that's always funny, isn't it, when someone's punching up? But there is a, something dark and heartbreaking at the heart of it, that it is about loss and vulnerability and making the best of things. Maybe that's it's such a tricky line to tread, isn't it? That's right. I think that um, the comic, the true comic novel needs some kind of soul as well. If there's no soul there, then it, it tends to feel more ephemeral than you might want it to. What are the best books that you remember being given as presents? I don't remember a lot from childhood. See, I think it's tricky. I don't, I don't really like being given books as presents. What someone at my publishers once explained to me that cookery books uh, sell so well because everyone buys them as gifts. And they ask nothing of the recipient. Like, everyone's going to flick through a cookery book and probably at some point in their lives cook something from that book. Um, but if you give someone Duck's Newburyport, then they think, oh, hell, you know, I've got six books by my bed. This is a thousand pages long. I know Daisy loves it, but when am I ever going to read it? And there is a kind of imposition of taste when you give people books, that um, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm such a terribly incurable book buyer that I think, well, whatever this is, I'm probably not going to want it. <laughs> I was given um, a first edition of Diary of a Nobody for my birthday by my sister and brother-in-law. I mean, it's a beautiful book. That's the best one. That is a really, really good present. And again, I think of a very, very, very funny book. Very funny book, but also kind of tragic, obviously, mm. as well. <laughs> and again about, you know, being pompous. Yes, yes. Um, and, and him never being in on his own joke at any mm. point. Going back to what made me laugh, uh, when I was, again, a teenager and I started reading Private Eye, um, I used to find Auburn War every bit as funny as his dad. And the first of his, well, it must have been older than teenager, I must have been 19, but his collected diaries from 72 to 76, it's like Molesworth. There's nothing, um, there's no page 
that I can open it at that doesn't make me laugh. And I think that he, Auburn, was uh, quite an influence on me, especially when I, I've been writing this column for an American magazine for a long time. And it's a mixture of me trying to be sincere and also stuff that's complete rubbish that I've made up. And, um, and Auburn was incredible at that. You know, he used to have his weekly meetings with the Queen and, and, and write about those. And he'd tell the Queen what was going wrong. But then he'd get incredibly annoyed about something real, you know, and, and, and passionate about it. I do think there's something liberating about reading a diary I and mean, it's sort of the opposite of a, a duty read isn't it and you and also it's quite nice I think I like the ones where it's not necessarily anything of consequence if someone's living an especially exciting life they're probably not going to make the time to write it all down and I suppose what's wonderful about um you know being a a diarist and being published in a newspaper is you've got a deadline yes yeah I, I tell you what um Extracts of diaries I've really been enjoying. I don't know if you've ever read um, David Kiniston, who's um, a social historian who's writing this incredible history of the 20th century from 1945 to 79 in the UK. He uses mass observation diaries, which went on way after the war. So you're given these snippets of how ordinary people felt about the coronation in 1953 or the end of rationing or the latest carry-on film. You know, they've they've all got it jotted down and that stuff you never get access to um, in in hardcover, as it were. So the mass observation thing is really interesting to me. Do you Have you read the mass observation stuff before? I've read tiny, tiny snippets. Most of the stuff that's published has come from wartime, obviously. It started in the 30s, but I, I think this stuff from the 40s and 50s is, is really incredible. And if you were going to say it would be great to read a diary of these last couple of years in 10 years' time, it really would be, yeah. I was wondering which writers or novelists or whose diaries you'd most like to read not necessarily to to get the big profound newsy details but who might be paying attention to the the bits you want to remember other than you <laughs> it is difficult because writers write I remember reading P.G. Woodhouse's letters and he was the most incredibly prolific person but when you read the letters, most of them are about what he'd written the day before or what he'd read in the newspaper because he, he just worked. And um, so there are a lot of writers who I love and respect and enjoy who I suspect wouldn't have that much to say in a diary because they've spent the day writing something else. Um, I would love to read what Dickens has to say about the last year, um, you know, that, that kind of observation that because he was all over things politically and socially, I think he would have absolutely skewered the pandemic and the PPE procurement and and things like that. He would have been brilliant on it. I think he'd have done a very good job reminding us there's perhaps not such a thing as as blitz spirit. I think there's a a certain group of people believe that, you know, we're all good and noble and community-minded in wartime. And I don't think that was necessarily the case. And I think that there are books. You know, there's one called The Myth of the Blitz, for example, where um, uh, they, there is quite a lot of evidence for the opposite. I was wondering um, 
what books are on your pile there and is there any books that you're sort of excited about reading or looking forward to later in the year i'm right in the middle of ricky lee jones's um memoir which i think is incredible i'm really blown away by it um it's mostly about her teenage years, not about her music career. And she had this extraordinary kind of halfway between juvenile delinquent and beatnik life from the age of about 13 or 14 onwards. Um, so it's sort of quite jaw-dropping. Then I'm going to go on to read a novel about Hollywood in the 30s called I Lost My Childish Laughter by... Um, a young woman in the 30s who was David O. Selznick's assistant and has written an, a novel that my wife says is very like Bridget Jones from the 1930s. And it, that, that sounds fantastic. Maybe it'll have to wait to the summer, but I want to read Mark Harris's biography of Mike Nichols. Um, I, I read an oral history last year and I'm still not, not done with Mike Nichols. So um, there's that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what I find interesting is I have a pile of books that uh, I'm really excited about. And then about a month later, you look at it again and you think, ah, I'm, I'm less excited about four of those seven. And sometimes there's this terrible process of being taken up to the bedroom, put on the bedside table, and then slowly going back to the main books from and being shelved without having gone through a, a reading bit first. So there are some that survive the initial desire to buy them and some that don't. <laughs> <laughs> but you're keeping the industry alive by being drawn to them in a bookshop. And we need that. I'm curious about these Mike Nichols books. Was that he was was it Elaine May that he was married to? He wasn't. They they did a double act together. They weren't ever lovers or married. They were very close friends. Uh, but he had the most incredible career because it was M Nichols and May who were the, the toast of Broadway with their review shows. He then directed theatre, and I'm forgetting what was first, but the movies were Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was the first one, and then I think The Graduate was the second one. And theatre, Angels in America, I mean, it's just, he's like kind of zelig in terms of, he was there for great cultural moments and he was there and helping create them. So I know, I think there's a, a Nora Ephron profile of him in um, possibly in Crazy Salad that I really loved. But it's one of those, but have I, have I read this book or have I just read about this book? I fear the latter, but I want more. Well, I, I really like the, the, the film writer Mark Harris and his book called, uh, depending on which country you're in, it's either called Pictures at a Revolution or Scenes from a Revolution about um, the 1960s. It's the 1969 best picture race between these five films. It's one of the most enthralling books about art I've, I've ever read. Um, he chooses that year because it's right on the cusp between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. And some of the films that were nominated were new Hollywood. The Graduate was one of them. Um, and some of them were old Hollywood, like Dr. Doolittle was nominated for Best Picture just because um, whoever it was threw enough money at the project to get it voted for. Um, but it's so smartly told and so kind of enthralling if you like films. I, it's, I wish I hadn't read it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Nick soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, My Rock and Roll Friend by Tracy Thorne. This is part biography, part memoir, as Thorne pieces together the life of an icon of rock history, that of her friend, Lindy Morrison, the drummer of the Go-Betweens. Thorne explores the way in which Lindy's work was groundbreaking and seeks to reinstate what sexism has erased. It's a funny, sad and celebratory book a social and personal history of an underrepresented artist, and it feels both widely resonant and intimate. My Rock and Roll Friend by Tracy Thorne is published by Canongate and out now. Now, back to Nick. Am I right in thinking you've not written any biography of anyone? No. If you could, who would you pick? Well, I'm sorry to be nerdy about it, but has a, has a biography of this person ever been written? It can be. People have more than one biography. I know, but I'd, I think I'd like, I'd like to approach fresh territory and not have to read other people's biographies. I've kind of thought in the past of writing a biography of my friend Stephen Frears, um, who is another one who's just had this incredible career that started in the 60s and, you know, he directed everything that Alan Bennett wrote for the BBC and then it's the Hollywood career and then remaking himself as a British film director after Hollywood and now really good, spectacularly good TV uh, stuff. You know, he's he's an old posh bohemian and I I have a lot of... um, I have a soft spot for that world anyway and Stephen's kind of hilarious. I'm also... Uh, because I'm, I have a working connection with him at the moment. It, I would like a Mick Jagger biography where I've been given full access to everything uh, that he knew and did, and uh, you know, like an authorized biography. Well, I would love to read them both. Uh, one of my favourite books that I read when we were all locked down and had nothing else to do was. Um, 
I think it's called Tales from the Colony Room um, by Darren Caulfield, but it was an oral history of um, sort of Francis Bacon. I love oral histories. I think it's such a great form. It's on the um, old posh bohemians theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good tip. Thank you. As I get older, I, I'm constantly, I feel like my uh, trolley has a wonky wheel and it's always going over towards biographies of artists and writers. And, and I have to kind of make a little wrench to go back towards fiction, actually. But if I were left to my own devices and I had no, no internal uh, uh, voice telling me that I, I should read contemporary fiction and so on, or, or classic fiction, I'd, I'd probably spend all my time reading biographies of actors, artists, writers. Before I forget, there's a book that you may well have read and come across, but it's about music and it's an oral history and it's one of my favourite things and it's incredibly funny. Have you encountered I Want My MTV? No. It's so good because it's just full of everyone contradicting everyone. Really bitchy, bratty. Oh, that sounds great. All anyone can agree on is that Toto were the best or the worst, depending on... (laughs) I wonder if it comes back a little bit to what you were saying with the trouble with the comic novel is it's difficult to have a graceful and hilarious conclusion to a funny book. And, you know, life is tragic, but it is hilarious. And most lives, very funny things happen. And very sort of strange things that you can't possibly have expected to find in the bi- biography that you're, you're reading. I remember being very startled. There's a wonderful biography of Lucille Ball. She, as you may or may not know, but used to fight with her husband who was in the show with her, like night after night after night. But apparently they started fighting the moment they started dating and they were still together, you know, 40 years later, they did get divorced. He used to drop her off um, when they first started dating. They'd have a furious row on the doorstep and F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald was watching them from upstairs. <laughs> that was his nightly entertainment, was watching Lucille Ball argue with her future husband. If F. Scott Fitzgerald thinks your domestic arguments are a little much, you should be worried. <laughs> yeah. And is that a person you were interested in anyway? I don't know. It's that feeling of browsing through a section and then suddenly thinking... Oh, my God, I would love to read a whole book about her. I had no idea I wanted to read a whole book about her, but I really do. And I did incredibly quickly and with great delight. Um, But that need hadn't been recognised in me at all. Uh, It's something I've missed during lockdown was that um, feeling that your, uh, your appetite is being met in ways that you didn't expect. I mean, what... I've bought books during lockdown, but I went online to buy them. You know, it's not the same. And I felt the same um, about Susan Orlean's biography of Rin Tin Tin, who was a, a movie and a TV dog uh, of the 20s onwards. Um, and that's an extraordinary story and very funny and, yes, occasionally sad. But there were many, many different Rin Tin Tins. Um, there's Rin Tin Tin the third and the fourth and the ninth and the sixteenth, and there's probably one now somewhere. When I was a kid, I, I watched the show, so I had a way into it through that. So I have many questions. How how does a writer approach a biography of a famous dog? 
I mean, it was told mostly through uh, the people who owned the, the dog. Um, so, you know, it's an incredibly moving story at the beginning. The first owner found a shivering puppy in uh, the middle of a battleground in France and uh, in the First World War and persuaded um, his commanding officer when he, at the end of the war to let him take the dog home. And for some reason, he, con he was convinced that this dog was a star. So, so he just marched up and down writing scripts until eventually someone said, all right then, and Rin Tin Tin became this huge silent movie star. Um, and then he'd go into abeyance for a few years because of the talkies or whatever. Uh, the reviews that, that Rin Tin Tin got are really funny. You know, people talked properly about his acting style. There was even, uh, I'm not going to remember who it was, but quite a sensible writer, famous writer, <laughs> who was writing for one of the papers. <laughs> so Rin Tin Tin is a very convincing performer. But um, it's really a story about the history of pets in America, uh, uh, which, you know, is relatively new. No one kept pets before the 20th century much. Um, it's also about the weird nature of show business, that um, th there's a fantastic legal battle between a, a Rin Tin Tin owner and a, a Rin Tin Tin copyright holder that is just unbelievable. So she just follows the thread of the dog and then the myth of the dog and and the, the cultural history of the dog through. It's so good. She's great, Susan Orlean. This sounds brilliant. Oh, it's completely enthralling. As is her book about the Los Angeles Library, the library book. It starts with her finding out sometime after the fact that in 1991, right, sometime after the fact that Los Angeles Library burnt down um, and and... Uh, millions of books and manuscripts and so on were lost and uh, it was probably arson. So she starts to investigate as much of the story as she can find out now. She's also very mystified about why she didn't know about it and when uh, she went to the microfiche to look up the newspaper, uh, New York Times, uh, it was, the big headline was, uh, nuclear accident at Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> that it was literally the same day, um, so she understood then why she hadn't read so much about it. But then she gives a, a history of the Los Angeles Library, and it's kind of mad and populated by eccentrics. And Susan Orlean always finds. Um, the funny story and the eccentric story and amazing people. I was thinking about um, books I love about Los Angeles. Have you come across Eve Babbitt at all? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it's a recent discovery and I'm a very big fan of hers. And I love her, but I don't think she spent an awful lot of time in the library. Um, <laughs> What's your favourite book about books? Actually, I was recently, a former guest of this podcast, Jessica Major, recommended the Guernsey Potato Peel Pie and Literary Society. But I read it on her recommendation and that's about reading and I suppose books being precious and people reading after a war and wanting to read when there's not much to read. I suppose that it's about people who otherwise wouldn't have a, a foundation for a friendship, yes. that books connect really unlikely people. Well, I think any passion does. I don't think there's any special quality to books, although it's something that's been very helpful to me 
to make connections with people and, and make friendships with people. But football does the same. Music does the same. Um, if, if you're passionate about something, then um, it does forge connections, really positive, strong connections with people who you might not have looked twice at in terms of thinking about friendship. There are books that I've tried to read and really struggled to read, not connected with, and then come back to and adored. But as you say, there are things like Catch-22 that you can read at the perfect time and then not the breadth of it you can probably there are countless books out there or a lot of books out there and there's there will be one out there for you somewhere and another reader to bond with over there are millions out there but there are there are some books that i think would change your life if you came across them and despite your experience with ducks newburyport one of my passionate messages to my friends especially you know, when they're busy and they haven't got a lot of reading time, is give up. If you are not enjoying it, give up, give up, give up. Because the next thing might be something that, you, you know, you cannot prize the book from, from their hands. And, and I think it's important to recognise that just because someone is telling you, you know, a newspaper is telling you that this book is, not, is for you, the chances of it being for you are very, very slim, in fact, because of all the elements that go into taste and response. And I think you've just got to keep trying. So the greater kindness might be instead of giving someone the gift of a book, you ought to break into their house, steal their books and leave them with a less daunting pile. Well, in my book column once, uh, when my children were younger, I suggested that the best present you could give a partner would be a, a reading voucher um, that entitled you to hand it in at any time and get one hour's reading away from family or whatever else was going on. Nobody could disturb you. That seemed like a, a, a gift beyond price, actually, at the time beyond when rubies. you're struggling. I like the idea. I think that's probably, you know, or, you know, certainly you can't go around giving people books unless you're going to give them the, the time and space yes, to read. Yeah, yeah. And I did meet a couple who came to a signing and said, we gave each other reading vouchers for Christmas and I was so pleased. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's a good a book about books. Lucy Mangans. Yes, her book of childhood reading. Um, I've read, have you read the Philip Spufford? Oh no, tell me about that. The Child That Books Built. Um, I think it's, uh, it, it sounds like roughly similar territory um it's sort of partly autobiographical uh, you know slightly difficult childhood relationship with books at the time um but one thing i remember in those that is the most perfect description of what it's like to learn to read and it's the sort of thing that research isn't going to help you with um it's just incredible recollection and a lot of it is about the the movement of words from solid to liquid, which is exactly what it feels like. That you you know when you're little, you're stumbling on these words, and then suddenly you're swimming through them quite quickly. And it's it's an amazing feeling to learn to read, anyway. But I I so appreciated his description of it. And he's such a clever writer. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I must read that. I have a really vivid memory of being out walking with my mum. And when, I think I read, I sounded out like a sign that had the Michelin Man on it. And then it suddenly hit me that I wasn't just learning to read the book I was reading about a witch and a toad. But I thought, when 
when I've cracked this, I can do it all. And it was just really, it was like, a, oh, I'm getting a superpower soon. Yes. My my 17-year-old who uh, has, a, uh, has had a complicated relationship with both books and schooling um, is learning to code at the moment. And I said, how's that going? And he said, oh, it's freedom. And um, it's the same feeling, I think, but it never occurred to me that coding could feel like that. But he said, you can do anything you want. You crack this, you can do it all. And maybe that's how people think more now. It's a leveller or, I don't know. I think this notion that reading is, reading's wonderful. I'm a big fan. It's changed my life and I'm glad it's a part of my life. But it's not better than coding. It's just something that, I mean, I think, I don't think I will ever know how to code and I think I always get more enjoyment from a book but it's it's just another way of us understanding what's around us. I remember being asked to name three books that I thought every child should have read by the age of 18 and I refused to answer the question I said you know it's a ridiculous question you need to know who the child is and And, um, the only people who refused to answer were me and Wendy Cope and um and Wendy Cope said, I know magnificent people who never read a book. And I know complete arseholes who read all the time. And um, one, of, one of the uh, comebacks I have when, it, when, say, when people tell me that fiction teaches empathy. Uh, I say, have you ever been in the English department of a university? Um, or have you ever met a literary critic? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> People have no empathy. <laughs> and they've been reading more fiction than the rest of us. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I think we need to try and pull it back and end on something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel exactly the same about reading. But if, if somebody said to you, I never read, and they look like David Beckham, you would judge them. And if somebody said, I never read, and then you found out that they, 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 te- they taught, uh, worked on a cancer ward in a children's hospital, there would be no judgment whatsoever. You think, well, of course they don't read. They've got no time for... Um, so it's clearly not intrinsic to the act itself. It's a way of us judging people. And I don't like reading used for that purpose, but I would... Uh, it's, it's still the greatest. I think that... You know, there's there's so much joy available. There must be people who, if they knew they could go and read about Rin Tin Tin, it would make them so happy. It's That's the thing, though. It, that's where we go wrong. And they don't know. And I think it's partly our fault because we're telling them to read the wrong things all the time. Adults and kids. Do you have any memories? Were there any books that sort of felt a bit forbidden or obscure or books that people thought either you shouldn't be reading that or why would you want to read that and you were sort of drawn to them for that reason no I I didn't my family was not particularly bookish I don't think they would would know what was forbidden and what wasn't unless there was a naked lady on the front of it I mean I remember my dad buying the forbidden books when they became unforbidden so you know I have I'm old enough to remember my dad buying both Fanny Hill and Lady Chatterley's Lover in paperback as soon as they came out because that was what you could do. 
I remember them being in the trunk of his car. I, I, I can't imagine him having read either of them, to be honest. And he must have been very disappointed with, uh, <laughs> with what was in there. Um, <laughs> someone saying John Thomas over and over again, I can't imagine, <laughs> gave as, as many kicks as he wanted. So I, 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 there was an awareness of what was um, a bit on the naughty side. But by the time I was a teenager, it was like things that were published as Penguin Modern Classics were quite mm. smutty. You didn't have to hide them because there was a sense in which we were being encouraged to read them. But then I guess that's the best way to um, to get people interested in a book, isn't it? Is to, um, to make it something that you feel the need to rush out and buy and then keep in the boot of your car. <laughs> I never knew. Uh, I was a bit obsessed with a book called Emil and the Detectives. I, oh, I, love that book. I, I never knew if that was obscure or not. I remember a really beautiful library edition with a yellow cover and a line drawing. Yeah. And I think what I loved about it was, because I wasn't very... I got a bit scared of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Espionage wasn't sort of my favourite thing, but there was a real... something quite gentle about Emil. Well, it's a very good mix because it is gentle, but... Um, the, the the theft that happens, I think, as he's travelling on the train is real. Mm. And you can't quite believe as, when you're a kid that there isn't going to be some innocent explanation or amusing explanation. Mm. Um, and there kind of wasn't. It was just something that happened. So it had a very intense effect on me because of its realness, I think. I recognised his world in terms of his friends and stuff like that. And you think, oh, wow, this is actually ha- this has actually happened to him did you know that um uh, that uh, he also that guy eric Kastner, wrote lottie and lisa which then became the parent trap oh that does ring a bell i'd forgotten and that was another book i loved lottie and lisa eric Kastner is one of those names where i've known it all my life because i've i read that book over and over and i, I loved lottie and lisa as well and then one day, like not long ago, I thought, oh, the internet will tell me who Eric <laughs> Kastner was. And um, he, he wasn't a children's writer. He was a satirist and an anti-Nazi activist and a pamphleteer. Really interesting. But it, it's funny that I'd never been curious enough mm. to ask that question before. That's interesting. I suppose when you're very young and... I don't know if you agree or not, but there's a kind of authority, isn't it? You're like, well, yes, of course, you're you're a writer and you've got this novel and that's what you do. And you sort of don't... You almost feel as though any questions you have are answered within the, the novel itself. Yes, yes. Are there any biographies about him? Uh, not that I've seen, no. I bet there's probably one in German, I would imagine. Mm. How's your German? O-level. Um, <laughs> and not recently. Due to them not existing anymore, O-levels. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe the research would be quite an undertaking. but Yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave that one to you because you like the book as much as me. <laughs> I'm looking back forward in, um, to I, I have a GCSE <laughs> from, um, the, oh, that's from more, 2001. More recent. It'll be so easier for you. Practically fluent. Yes. Nick, I could talk about books for hours, but I suspect you've got to um, to get on. and. I'd like to do a bit of writing, yeah, but it's fine. <laughs> I've I've enjoyed it. Uh, Are there any books that we didn't come to that you wanted to mention? Well, I always think that Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant by Anne Tyler changed my life. 
um, like literally, I suddenly knew what I wanted to do and the way in which I wanted to do it. When did you read it? 1986 or 1987. I didn't know that kind of writing was, I want to say allowed, um, but it, it was a combination of her reviews and her sales that I thought, oh, this isn't, this isn't what I thought literary fiction was. I thought you had to choose between being in an airport or being on the Booker Prize list. And there was this woman who walked so brilliantly between literary and and mainstream and was so clever and uh, so sharp about people and and so accessible in her prose. I thought, oh, my God, this it was such a revelation to me because I used to read whatever Graham Swift or... Uh, Salman Rushdie and think, well, I I just can't do it. I couldn't do it. So what's the point? But I didn't, I had to find the different way. Quite recently, I started reading Anne Patchett and I think I had a similar... Another one, yeah. The way people spoke about her made me think she'd be very grand and quite inaccessible. And I was sort of, and again, I think I felt that I need to stretch myself. And I thought, oh, gosh, she's just, like I said that, you're allowed and you can be very smart and thoughtful and inventive. Exactly, and that's why I'm not happy with your stretching yourself. You were stretched. I mean, you were stretched by the people and, and, and trying to find what the artistic impulse was and how these people are connecting to each other. But you're not stretched by having to read uh, 40 pages, which is one paragraph. That's a different kind of stretching, which is something akin to torture rather than education in the sense of leading something out of you. I know there are books that... Um, <laughs> well, it's like I've been um, on a bit of a backlist kick and I've been reading um, Gail Jones, who is still with us. He has a new book. Right, um, okay. I think in the autumn. And she's a writer where she's not easy to read because she's writing about really uncheerful you know things that have happened you know to to humanity that we need to know about and but the the quality of the of the prose but then I think but I love that she's so experimental stylistically as well as she's writing about something that feels quite challenging quite but also in a way that no I don't think I've not encountered any other writer who who conveys it as such. But you're being you're being drawn to her. So you're reading her for pleasure. So the sense of stretching is not um it's not combative in any way. That's a perfect way to put it. Thank you. I think <laughs> you win. It's not a um it's not stretched like an exercise class. <laughs> I mean if I were to give you you know, there was a very good book came out four or five years ago about the history of of, of football tactics. Seven, eight hundred pages. I think that would stretch you because every night you'd feel, I want to cry, um, <laughs> but I'm being stretched, so I must carry on. And that's as, as pointless as it seems, plodding on with something that you're not enjoying. That's what it feels like. I did, I did once read Dean Windass's autobiography. <laughs> um, By choice. I have no regrets. <laughs> I, was, I was very little. See, I was stuck. I had nothing else to read. Where were you? Where the, you, you could only read Dean, Dean Windows. <laughs> so I, can I guess? Uh, it, I think it was a prison in Bradford. 
I, I'd burn down a library. <laughs> That's protect. I can't imagine anywhere else. Where, uh, it's, it's Dean Windass or nothing. <laughs> or Dean Windass's house, maybe. Were you having an affair with Dean Windass? <laughs> he had a library, only that book. <laughs> many copies. Not, not so many translations, but many copies. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to... Um... Quit while we're ahead. Leave that idea in your, in your imagination. We got to Dean Windass in a very roundabout way, but we got there in the end. That is always the goal for, for this podcast. <laughs> Huge thanks to Nick. Just Like You is published by Penguin and out now. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Edgast. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. I hope you had as much fun as producer Dale and me. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and we'd like to send a huge thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It's the best way to help other people discover the podcast and for them to discover their new favourite book. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Nick at acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from Jean Rees. Not that she objected to solitude, quite the contrary. She had books, thank heaven, quantities of books, all sorts of books. See you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.